This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham, National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, joined me on the show to talk about the latest in federal politics. Then, Dr Matthew Sharp, an Associate Professor in Philosophy, joined me to talk about his lecture, Philosophy and Evil, as well as exploring the ideas of existentialism and the work of Albert Camus. Then finally, Dr Alexandra Phelan, a global health law professor at Georgetown University, joined me to talk about the coronavirus outbreak in Wuhan in Hubei province, mainland China. We also discuss the spread of the coronavirus beyond the borders of mainland China, the global health concerns, the role of the WHO, as well as the issues with containment strategies that are currently in place in China. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 FM with me, Amy Mullins. And now joining me in the studio is Ben Eltham, National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, and also uh, Ben filled in for me over January. So hello, Ben, and thank you for filling in too. Oh, thank you for letting me fill in, Amy. Anytime. Oh, it was a pleasure. I'm glad you got to uh, cover some important issues that were certainly going on in January in federal politics, and it's usually not the case that there is so much happening. I'm actually pretty proud of the three shows we put together over the break. Um, We did some proper journalism. We talked to some people in the bushfire zones. Um, It was obviously a pretty important time, some serious stuff happening. So, yeah, I was was glad to be able to, to, you know, provide some news. Indeed. And there have been subsequent bushfires, certainly in Canberra with the Namudgee National Park bushfire. Yeah, of course. I mean, we shouldn't just, like, pretend it's over. Of course it's not over. It's still burning in parts of the country. Um, You know, it just shows what a... What a, a problem we face as as the climate gets warmer. Um, so, yeah, you know, we're not out of the woods by any means. Indeed. Now let's talk about what has really triggered all the drama uh, for recent leadership spills, including the ones being held today. Yes, I heard your intro, Amy. Yeah, I mean, very interesting times in federal politics. Again. Again, again, <laughs> yes. Two leadership spills in one day. It's amazing. It does feel a little bit like Christmas. Um, Ben, let's talk about Bridget McKenzie. She's now a former minister. She resigned on Sunday after a very long period of people calling for her resignation and a number of uh, subsequent stories coming out from different journalists highlighting many issues with the sports grants that she gave out during the election campaign um, and certainly that was condemned really by the Auditor General. Can you share with us what exactly this scandal is about and how it's evolved? Yeah, it all goes back to... uh a program that the government runs, the federal government runs a sports grants program. So they give out money to sporting associations, local sports clubs and the like. An entirely worthy program that no one would have any problems at all with except that uh, it came to light through an investigation by the Auditor-General that the sports minister, Bridget McKenzie, has thoroughly corrupted basically the the sports grants process so and so normally what happens with these grants is there's a body called sport australia which is used to be called the australian sports commission uh they're the guys that give out the money they're a kind of quasi independent body they're a bit like the australia council for arts grants right so Mm -hmm. they they called for applications sporting clubs from all over the country put in their applications and then they ranked them and they said okay the following clubs deserve to get funding 
Now, what then happened was that Bridget McKenzie took all of those applications and threw them in the bin. And she devised a completely parallel process, as the Auditor General found, where she just made up a whole bunch of uh, reasons for giving money out. And, of course, the reasons that the, the money was given out to the sports clubs who did end up getting funding had nothing to do with the merit of their applications. It was all about what marginal seats those clubs happened to be in. So you had all of these kind of things happening where like really rich rowing clubs in Mossman got half a million dollars because Tony Abbott was facing a tough battle against uh, Zali Stegel in, in, in his seat up there um, in northern Sydney. You know, you had um, a whole bunch of grants given out essentially on political grounds to Mm. try and help the re-election of the coalition government. And this led to all sorts of media opportunities with uh, various local coalition members, Scott Morrison, um, even coalition candidates, people like Georgina Downer, who wasn't even an MP, giving out money, holding novelty checks in front of bowling clubs and the like. Um, and, And this is really what the Auditor General investigated. And the Auditor General's report, which was handed down just before Christmas, was devastating. I mean, it finds, basically it finds corruption. So what's happened is that the normal processes have been subverted uh, and instead of uh, the the merits of the process applying, what's happened is that Bridget McKenzie and probably some people from the Prime Minister's office as well have come up with their own special list. In fact, we know they had a spreadsheet. (laughs) um, Yep, colour-coded. Colour-coded spreadsheet that was completely about the political advantage for the Liberal and National parties. Now, that's corruption in my opinion. That's the subversion of the public interest for the private party political interest of the the parties that are currently in government. Indeed, and don't just take our word for it. I think it's worth reading a very brief extract from the report because it shows how damning this really is. Yep. Um, Quote, there was evidence of distribution bias in the award of grant funding. Overall statistics indicate that the award of funding was consistent with the population of eligible applications received by state and territories, but was not consistent with the assessed merit of applications. Um, And then he... talks about, they talk about, sorry, um, focusing on marginal electorates held by the coalition as well as those electorates held by other parties or independent members that were to be targeted by the coalition at the 2019 election. Applications from projects located in those electorates were more successful in being awarded funding than if funding was allocated on the basis of merit assessed against the published program guidelines. I mean, can you be any more clearer than that? Well, it's actually worse than that, Amy, because... Because of the the legal structure of Sport Australia, which is an independent Commonwealth agency, it's not a line department within the government like a normal public service department. Uh, there's a question over whether Bridget McKenzie actually had the legal authority to give out this money. So we think that these grants may well be challenged now in a, in a legal action. So, you know, it's a very open question whether she actually had the legal basis to give out this money, you know. so And some w- of it was a lot. Like, it's not... It's about $100 million. Yeah, Mm. I mean, look, it's not a lot in the scheme of the federal budget. You know, it's about one joint strike fighter or what have you, but it's still a lot of money, and particularly for sports clubs who many of them can't strike, you know, two cents together. So, you know, I think there's a whole bunch of probity issues. There's a whole bunch of integrity issues. Um, What was very clear from the outset was that Bridget McKenzie had breached the ministerial standards. Uh, These are the so-called ministerial code of conduct that very rarely applies to ministers' actions. Um, but but very obviously, you 
know, the, the ministerial standards published, by the way, by Scott Morrison when he came to the Prime Ministership in August 2018, they say that ministers must act with integrity. They say that ministers must make decisions that are not biased. This is what's in the written standards that Morrison has issued. So he got his head of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, a guy called Phil Gaitchens, a guy who used to be his own staffer, uh, to do a report into Bridget McKenzie. And that report came in over the weekend. The report said that Bridget McKenzie had a conflict of interest because she was a member of a shooting club that Mm. she also gave money to. But it then also went on to clear her, supposedly, uh, from any of the, the worst stuff, you know, from any of the bias or any of the rorts that uh, the Auditor General found. Um, And so Morrison was then able to have a, you know, neat political situation. He was able to sack Bridget McKenzie from the ministry, but also to claim that the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet had cleared the program. Um, Of course, we won't know because he hasn't released that report. Indeed, and a number of people have suggested that the reason why Scott Morrison and others have defended Bridget McKenzie non-stop for weeks now uh, was because clearly she couldn't have acted alone. It's unlikely she was the only one who knew about the bias. And so although we can't confirm that given um, the situation at the moment, the Labor Party uh, are going to pursue this through a Senate inquiry to see if they can get down to the bottom of what happened and no doubt it will come up in estimates as well when that does uh, rear its head. Oh, this went to the very top. This was part of the government's re-election strategy. They absolutely planned this from the ground up and it absolutely went all the way into the Prime Minister's office. There's no doubt about that. Um, And the existence of the colour-coded spreadsheet confirms that. Mm. Uh, So there's no doubt that this whole program was constructed by Morrison and his office as a way of getting positive media in the run-up to the election and particularly to paint Morrison in that kind of positive light that he was able to leverage in the election campaign. You know, the guy, how many times did we see Morrison in the election campaign throwing a footy around in front of a sports club, wearing a baseball cap, being a daggy dad? Mm-hmm. You know, like this was this was a, a conscious media strategy tied to a corrupt government funding program. Well, they also, if people recall, had barely any actual policies to announce. So this is one way of actually having things to announce while going around the country. Yeah, and it proved so successful, at least in media terms, that the Mm. government actually topped up the grants um, very, very close to the election. So they tipped another $30 million in, I think, about eight weeks before the election. Uh, And that went to Cabinet, you know. So really, the whole Cabinet is uh, implicated in this program as well. Yep, just another part of the puzzle that is this coalition government. And isn't so, it? I mean, I think the obvious thing needs to be said before we leave the sports mm. rorts affair, which is that this is why we need a federal anti corruption body, right? Because this is corruption. And there's no one to investigate it. Now, if Bridget McKenzie had been a New South Wales minister, there's no doubt in my mind that she'd be now up on an investigation from the New South Wales ICAC Mm. because what she is engaged in is official misconduct by the definition of the New South Wales law. Now, we don't have those laws federally and we don't have a federal anti-corruption agency. And so she's able to swan back to the backbench and basically pretend that there's nothing to see here. Indeed, yep. Now, let's get on to what the implications are for a resignation 
of Bridget McKenzie. She was the deputy leader of the Nationals Party and uh, now we see that there is a spill motion that's going to occur. Barnaby Joyce is contesting the leadership, not the deputy leadership, and uh, he's been on radio this morning talking about it all, downplaying any of the controversy and political baggage that he might bring to the role, which a number of uh, country and national voters have brought up as being um, something to count against Barnaby Joyce. What do you think about his contesting this leadership now against Michael McCormack? <laughs> what do I think, Amy? Mm. Well, I, th- I think that uh, Barnaby is incapable of not contesting, basically, is, is what I think. So uh, he was always going to take any opportunity to try and get back into the job uh, because that's the kind of politician that Barnaby Joyce is. Mm-hmm. Uh, he loves the spotlight. Uh, he gets relevance deprivation syndrome very quickly when he's not in the spotlight. As we so, see on Twitter. Indeed, indeed. So this was probably inevitable. Um, but it also brings to light the factional problems within the National Party. So the current leader, Michael McCormack, if anybody knows who he is, uh, he's risen without trace and he hasn't been the most uh, scintillating of <laughs> deputy prime ministers, uh, national leaders. He's a former newspaper editor from Wagga. Uh, and um, as the current leader, it's fair to say he hasn't set the world on fire. Um, there's a fairly delicate balance within the National Party factionally. Of course, Barnaby Joyce resigned after his well-known uh, personal issues came to light, the, the affair with his staffer. Um, and, and also, I should add, some sexual harassment allegations that have never gone away, really, or been properly investigated. Um, in any case... Um, the resignation of Mackenzie as deputy leader gave Barnaby the opportunity to try and have another tilt at the leadership, and that's exactly what's going to happen this morning. Mm. It'll be interesting to see if he gets up, if he has the numbers. I don't know. Um, there'll be a bunch of hardline nationals who will back him, particularly Queenslanders, where he's always been popular, and obviously the moderates uh, will probably be less enthusiastic about the return of Joyce as the leader. Yes, and Matt Canavan um, quit the front bench yesterday to try and draw people behind Barnaby Joyce to uh, because he is actually really not behind uh, Michael McCormack anymore. No, no, that's clear. Canavan hasn't ever mm. been in the McCormack faction, and so Canavan's sort of thrown his weight behind Joyce. Uh, so we believe has David Littleproud, the current uh, emergency services minister, who hasn't done particularly well. I need to correct what I said before because all the white men, starting with the name of D, confuse me in the National Party. There's Darren Chester, who's the member for Gippsland, who I was mean- yes. meaning has been quite good <coughs> I in I tend the to agree with you there, Amy. I think Chester's had a very good summer um, mm. and I think Chester's... He's a good actual. He's actually a good contrast to some of those Queensland nationals. He's more of an old style national. He a, certainly is a country, a country liberal, um, in the sense that you know he's a he's a fairly uh, he's conservative, but he's socially liberal. He's fairly moderate in his views. He's very um, consultative with his yeah, constituents. Yeah, he's very well liked out in his electorate out there in Eastern Victoria. Mm. Um, but he doesn't have many factional numbers, so he's languished pretty much in the in the background in the in the Victorian Nationals, which I think yeah. is a shame because I actually think he's their best talent. It is a shame, I agree. And uh, he was briefly Minister for Infrastructure, Transport, and Regional Development between 2016 and 17. Uh, but that's about as far as he got. So um, David Littleproud, on the other hand, the other D, um, has not been doing too well during the bushfire crisis and he was 
on obviously a number of shows being interviewed about well, it. It's worth pointing out, yeah. Little Proud was the guy that Morrison said was the guy who was on the ground during the crisis. So it's fair to say that Little Proud must wear some of the blame for the manifest lack of preparedness by the federal government for this bushfire crisis. Mm, indeed. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see who does grab the leadership and particularly if we're thinking about now who's really put their name behind Barnaby Joyce if Barnaby isn't uh, successful what does that mean for those people who've put their reputation on the line I suppose there has to be a reshuffle within the National Party which would entail a reshuffle with the Federal Cabinet uh, which probably would be to Morrison's advantage actually because he probably needs to do a reshuffle now to to clear the air and you know he's got to replace Mackenzie anyway so uh yeah it wouldn't surprise me actually if there was a reshuffle in the wake of this instability yeah well I'm following along on the Guardian and apparently the deputy leadership vote is now being held so we may find out before the end of this interview what is going on yeah it's all happening uh we should also mention that um the Greens have started to sort things out Adam Bant is going to be the leader which is probably not too much of a surprise. Yeah, so Richard Di Natale, the, uh, well, now the former leader, stepped down yesterday afternoon, announced that he was leaving politics to spend more time with his family. I think in this case, actually, it mm. is a case where he really does actually just want to spend more time with his family. Normally, politicians, when they say they want to spend more time with their family, there's some kind of scandal lurking in the background. But I think uh, those of us who know Richard Di Natale probably think there's probably no scandal lurking in the background. He really is just... Uh, a little bit burnt out, I think. Mm. Um, so five years as the Greens leader, uh, I think now is time to, to look back on Dintali's leadership and to assess how he's gone. It's fair to say he hasn't necessarily grown the, the Greens' vote particularly, but I think he probably deserves a little bit of praise for holding the party together, particularly in some difficult times over the last couple of years with some debilitating factional infighting in the New South Wales and Victorian branches. Um, And, you know, a news poll came out yesterday and it had the Greens on 13%. You know, that's the Greens will get a senator in every state if they poll 13% at the next election and they may well have the balance of power in the Senate in the next parliament if they poll that. So, you know, it's fair to say that the Greens vote, while it hasn't necessarily burst through into kind of uh, Labor Party territory, it's also held its own. And that's probably what we can say about Dean Tully's leadership. He's he's held the Greens together. And it's probably important to mention that fact because we've seen so many different minor parties come and go and rise to relative prominence and leave, and the Greens have really been quite a stable influence in the Senate. Yeah, they're, they're a resilient minor party, there's no doubt about it. Um, And I think it underlines the fact that uh, we really have a sort of two-and-a-half party system now in Australia where the Labor Party probably isn't going to win those Greens voters back, I don't think, anytime soon, Um, despite the the, the fervent hopes of many in the Labor Party. I don't think it seems to be happening. No. Um, And Anthony Albanese is not really particularly that socialist, is he? Well, uh, He's from the left faction. You know, I, I don't think Albanese would describe himself as a socialist. I think that's fair to say. He might well describe himself as a social democrat, and I think there's an interesting debate to be had about where Albanese's leadership is going in the Labor Party at the moment. Uh, but there's no doubt that Albanese has signalled a move towards the centre since taking the leadership, uh, and, and so that's left uh, more space out on the left for the Greens to occupy. 
Exactly. Now, let's also mention that um, there are three people vying for the two deputy spots. Um, three who have been slated to be relevant for those positions are Larissa Waters, who's now back in the Senate, of course, Sarah Hanson-Young and Maureen Faruqi. Yeah, well, uh, let's talk about Adam Batt first, I suppose. So he's the presumptive leader. It looks as though he's stitched up a unanimous deal there. Uh, he's the only Green the, in the lower house. Yeah, the, I think he's going to be the only leadership candidate and therefore the consensus leader. That's right, he's the only Green in the uh, lower house. He's the member for Melbourne. He's got a very safe seat in Melbourne. Um, and um, I think he's going to be an effective leader, actually. He's probably the most politically savvy of the Greens, and I think that he's shown, uh, particularly in the lower house, that he's pretty good on the crossbenches as well. So he works well with some of those other crossbenches like Rebecca Sharkey, uh, like, uh, for example, Helen Haynes up in Indi. Um, so, you know, he's got a bit of leverage there, particularly um, if the coalition were to lose a couple of members, then the lower house becomes live again. So he's got a bit of leverage there. And then, yes, the deputy leader will then come from the Senate. I'm expecting it to be Larissa Waters. Um, I think she's probably in the box seat and particularly coming from Queensland. That's a state where the Greens have been growing in recent times. Um, but, I mean, I think it's worth saying that the Greens have got a fair bit of leadership talent. You know, if you look at Maureen Faruqi, for example, she's an excellent uh, upper house senator. Um, you know, she's had a long career in New South Wales politics before coming to the Senate. Mm. And Sarah Hanson-Young, of course, um, has built a, a, a wide profile for herself in South Australia. So I don't think the Greens are going away is the short answer. Um, their challenge is can they break through to the next level? Yes, and uh, there is news on the leadership front. Michael McCormack is the leader and David Littleproud, deputy leader. Right, so there you yes. Go. Uh, well, uh, another tilt at a windmill from Barnaby Joyce there. <laughs> so, I mean, the, there are 21 members of the National Party party room, so Barnaby needed 11 votes. So <laughs> I think that shows yeah. you that... Um, Barnaby can't count to 11, (laughs) (laughs) which is a worry for a former finance minister. God, did that really happen, Ben? He really was the finance minister, yes. yes. That's a scary thought. He was the deputy prime minister. Yes, yes, I I do remember that part very vividly. Um, Damien Drum, the chief whip for the Nationals, said they won't be revealing the numbers, given how small it is. You pretty much know who voted what almost. So we won't know by what margin, but it is pretty um, clear that we've got a stable team probably. Yes. Well, I mean, that's a humiliating defeat for Joyce, isn't it, really? I mean, I think that just really underlines his increasing irrelevance. And um, I mean, he'll obviously be able to hold his seat of New England for as long as he wants. He's very popular up there in northern New South Wales. But I think federally and particularly with his colleagues, he's clearly on the outer. Yes. Um, sad for Darren Chester. One day his time will come. Maybe he'll <laughs> like, get into cabinet. I don't know. I have hope that decent politicians will be rewarded eventually. I mean, this, it sounds ironic to suggest this, but actually Darren Chester's best chance is if he moved over to the Liberals. Yes. Well, there aren't that many moderate Liberals left. 
No, a lot of them left. As a moderate country liberal, I think he'd be um, he'd, he'd be an instant cabinet in. Actually, mm, yeah, mm, true. Yeah. Now, um, Ben, let's uh, cap off all of this by I wanted to mention the political donations that we saw at the last election. Um, the Grattan Institute brought out some of the figures that have been kind of formalised um, with a discussion about the biggest political donation on record, which was eighty four million dollars from. Clive Palmer's mining company. It's astonishing, is isn't it? Yeah. Isn't it astonishing? Huge. I mean, I think this just underlines uh, just how many problems our democracy faces. You know, the, the fact that a, a billionaire is able to spend the amount of money that Clive Palmer spent. I mean, he outspent the Labor Party, right, mm. um, in, in, in the last election. Um, now, people have argued about exactly how much impact Clive Palmer had in terms of votes. Um, Palmer United Party didn't get a lot of votes in the last federal election, but I think the advertising campaign clearly hurt Labor. There's no yes. doubt about that. Um, and if it was worth a couple of points to the coalition in the last election, well, the coalition only won by a couple of points, you know. So uh, I think I think it manifestly had an impact on the federal election, maybe not the decisive impact, but certainly an impact. And whether it had an impact or not, the fact that one person can donate the majority of the money in an entire federal election Mm. and run a partisan campaign in that respect, I think it shows the pressing need for reform to the way money works in our political system. Yes. Well, they did put out a very interesting graph, which is about the last five elections, um, showing that party spending has pretty much correlated to an outcome of being the winner if you had the most amount of advertising dollars behind you. Um, And the one example of where Labor did go well was 2007, and they did have more money to draw from than the coalition did in that election, and then they won, and of course... Labor hasn't been all that successful since. Um, the other thing that's particularly interesting is that there's a lot of private money going to both parties, yeah. more so the LNP, though, with 53% of their private income being undisclosed um, and 20% being disclosed donations. So um, Labor's a little bit less yeah, than that. But yeah. it's pretty surprising that basically uh, over half, we don't know where that money comes from. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's the other glaring problem of, with our donations transparency it's not transparent it's completely opaque i mean half of the money is dark and you can do small donations in installments to avoid having your name put down as as with the source oh you can drive a truck through the political donation system federally in this country i mean it's a joke basically um you know yeah if you want to donate money to one of the major parties you can do it completely anonymously and it's very easy you know um because uh, the the I think the the limit for disclosure is something like fourteen thousand dollars. So any amount that you donate that is less than fourteen thousand dollars will not be disclosed, and you can you can donate as many lots of twelve thousand dollars as you like. So mm. you can donate millions and not disclose it in the current system. So I don't think anyone thinks that it's a good system. Uh, you know, except in, the politicians. Except the politicians in Queensland, for example, we have real-time disclosure of political donations, and ministers also have to disclose their diaries. So we know, for example, if a minister is going to meet with a Dani, or if a minister is going to meet with a trade union, you know, mm. we know that stuff in Queensland because the law says that they have to to keep that stuff public. We don't have anything like that in the federal system, and I think it's a disgrace. 
Yep, absolutely. Um, now, let's just finish our chat. I wanted to mention that Bob Catter has stepped down from the leadership of the Catter Party. Oh, how could we have forgotten? I know. Yes. Big news yesterday. Yes, it is big news Handed in North Queensland. Handed the reins to yep. his son. So yes, it's Robbie all very Catter. exciting. Yes. Yep. Uh, so Robbie Catter, for those of you who don't follow minor party politics closely, <laughs> Robbie Catter is a member of the Queensland Parliament up in um, North Queensland. Uh, where the Catter part, the, well, the Catters themselves are a sort of three generation dynasty, right? So Bob Catter's dad, Bob Catter Senior, was a member of Parliament before Bob Catter Junior. So uh, the roots go deep up there in Queensland cattle country. And um, look, the the Catter Party is not an important party in the scheme of things, but you know it continues to to have very deep local roots, and I, I don't think it's going away either. Yeah. Um- And the final issue of news is the uh, coronavirus and Australia's actions that uh, it's taking. Of course, we've taken a coronavirus more seriously than life-threatening bushfires that are actually in our country and widespread. And a lot of people have drawn kind of comparisons between the coalition's response to both of those crises. Um, One little hiccup was the $1,000 requirement for people who wanted to be airlifted out, which has now subsequently been changed. You don't need to pay to have DFAT assist you to leave uh, Wuhan to go to Christmas Island. Yeah, detention centre. Uh, I mean, yeah, there's there's no problem. This government things can't be solved by locking people up on an island. Apparently, poor but, Christmas Island though for yeah. those who actually live there, and also the refugees who are actually still there. That family who are still mm-hmm. in Christmas Island detention yeah, centre. Yeah, there's still the family from Biloela locked up on Christmas Island against their will, mm. uh, about to be deported, um, and then we're going to quarantine a bunch of people from Wuhan on Christmas Island as well. Um, I don't think this... Well, once again, this is showing, I think, how poorly the Morrison government performs in a crisis under pressure. Mm. Um, just on Sunday, we had two ministers saying two different things about the evacuation, even as it was going on. Uh, so I think the government has, has scrambled, really, to stay abreast of the situation. It is a significant situation. It's having important consequences for our higher education system. I work at a university and it's fair to say that it's been a rolling crisis Mm. over at Monash University. And they're Uh, delaying semesters beginning by two weeks. Yep, Monash has uh, delayed the semester. Uh, There's been all sorts of meetings going on over there at Clayton. Um, You know, it's a very, very significant uh, uh, issue because uh, something like 11,000 students uh, are from China uh, including many that I teach, mm. um, they can't get on the plane to come back to Australia. You know, I was getting texts from students on on the weekends, basically saying, "I can't, I can't get back." Um, so it's really going to affect our university system. We don't know how long this crisis will continue. Of course, infections are still going up in in mainland China from yeah. the virus itself. So we don't we don't know how bad this will be. We don't know if it will be a pandemic or not. Um, And I think it highlights the vulnerability of our higher education system to an event like this because we're we're very much relying on foreign student income for our universities to be solvent, really, Mm. to to keep their head above water. So um, an event like this poses really, really big challenges uh, to the sustainability of our university system. It does, it does. Ben, thanks so much for coming in. It's great to uh, have you back to talk about federal politics. Hope you have a fantastic week and we'll talk about more drama as it unfolds. Thanks, Amy. It's good to see you, mate.
I've been speaking with Ben Eltham, who is the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, and we've been talking about the latest in federal politics with a number of things happening, including a leadership spill in the Greens Party and the Nationals Party at the federal level. So it's all happening in federal politics right now. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. I studied philosophy at uni and it was one of the best things I ever decided to do, I've got to say, and it certainly changed my whole outlook on everything I look at really in politics, in history, my own life. And I'm sure that must be the case for my next interviewee, Dr. Matthew Sharp, who is an associate professor in philosophy at Deakin University. And uh, he's, gosh, a bit of an expert on almost everything and certainly on the subjects I really like. So I'm very excited about that uh, particular fact. He actually um, knows a lot about classical philosophy and we're thinking about people like Plato and Socrates, um, but he is also an expert in psychoanalysis, existentialism. I think he has a strong interest in stoicism as well. And he's written a lot recently about Albert Camus, which is uh, really fantastic because I think he's uh, been recognised as a great author and he's been associated with existentialism for a long time, but there is some grey in that uh, particular association and there's a little bit of um, politics between Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus and I believe even Camus may have had a relationship briefly with Simone de Beauvoir. There was a lot of um, interconnection going on and I spoke with someone, gosh, I think it was about a year ago now, um, Agnes Poirier, about the left bank and uh, the many, many interconnections between those intellectuals, personal and professional. So we're going to be talking about existentialism and evil, which is the subject of Matthew's lecture tonight at the Existentialist Society in East Melbourne, and much more than that. So let's welcome Matt now. Hi there, Matthew, and thank you for coming in and talking with us today. G'day, Amy. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, pleased to be here. It's a pleasure. I'm very excited. Excuse me if I'm a bit breathless because I had to run from the kitchen uh, with a glass of water a little bit earlier than expected. Now, let's get into some really exciting subjects, and they are pretty big, so obviously um, we can narrow things down a little bit. But for those who may be listening and didn't have the opportunity or choose to study philosophy, because I know a lot of people would think of that name and find it daunting, as I did, um, and certainly, thank God, the first subject I ever did was not um, too scary and was taught by a wonderful man named Chris Cordner. I know Chris, yeah. Yeah, he's fantastic. And he uh, first introduced me to, well, pretty much every philosopher, main philosopher that we have had to talk about, but certainly existentialism was a really important part of the curriculum and for very good reason. It is still very influential today and it was a really important development in the 20th century because of the times they were in, I guess. So for those maybe who have not had an exposure to philosophy and have heard of people talk about existentialism, existential angst, um, what does it mean in a philosophical sense? Well, look, there's, there's a few different strands, but I'll, I'll have a crack at just giving you a couple of answers. Um, so existentialism, you mentioned Sartre, so why don't I start with Sartre? Mm. So Sartre says that, Human beings are, and I'm going to have to use a little bit of tech language, 
our existence precedes our essence, okay? Now, that that's relatively technical. What does he mean? He means that a table, if you want to make a table, you've got an idea of a table in your head, that's its essence, and then you make the table. We don't really have a preformed essence, Sartre believes. We have an existence, we're here, and then we've got to make up our minds as far as Sartre can see as to what we do with that existence. So existentialism is its a philosophy that kind of emerges, uh, as Amy's indicated, and really comes to prominence 30s and 40s in Europe. Huge times, war, crisis, um, yeah, you know, um, the Holocaust, uh, Stalinism. People are being faced with extraordinary choices. And there's also a sense that the old answers aren't working. So the old ideas, in particular the old Christian ideas, aren't speaking uh, to younger generations who are being thrown into these situations. And it's in this context that Sartre writes his book, Being a Nothingness. It's and pretty you... weighty, isn't it? It's quite a large book and very dry. It's 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 a big one, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, and you know, with a title like "Being a Nothingness," um, <laughs> you're sort of you, you, you're pre-warned, aren't you, that uh, you're in for for not a light read. <laughs> um, the other figure that you mentioned, Albert Camus, is associated with existentialism. We can talk about that. He has the idea in his early work, which is is related but not identical. And he says, "Well, there's something absurd about human existence. We find ourselves." faced with the responsibility of living a life where there are no clear ultimate answers. And there's something, you know, as Kundera said, unbearably light but maybe unbearably heavy about that. And, you know, here's a guy who was a resistance journalist. Some of his mates were put up against a wall and faced, you know, Nazi justice in inverted commas in the form of a rifle squad. So heavy times, heavy subjects, but this sense that... Here we are, what do we do with it? The ultimate answers that were previously given maybe aren't really speaking to the kinds of immense crises we're facing. That's where existentialism gets its kind of urgency and its popularity in the 30s and 40s. Mm. And there's an important kind of uh, moral element to this. A lot of people, when Sartre delivered this lecture called Existentialism is a Humanism in English, um, of course he spoke in French, but it's a really uh, important text to look at. It's also very accessible, I think, in a relative sense compared with being in nothingness. Yeah, absolutely. And it does introduce people to this concept that you've said, which is existence precedes essence. But a lot of people have said, well, you know, what then guides people and why would they choose to be good and do good things? You know, what is the moral dimension to existentialism if there is one? And why would someone have a good conscience or act in good faith as um, Jean-Paul Sartre introduces. And that's an important element given that previous philosophers like Immanuel Kant was particularly focused on that idea of how do we do good, should we do good, in what ways um, should that be, I guess, spelt out to people and is there a universal kind of um, law or rule that we should be following well, this, this kind of gets to the heart of, for example, why Camus was a bit ambivalent when mm. he got lumped in with Sartre because Camus, as I've already mentioned, got involved in the resistance and, and Camus was very concerned about, okay, so where does morality com- come from in a world where kind of God explanations seem to be unavailable or unconvincing to increasing numbers of people? And Camus' answer very simply is that we're all in this together um, and so solidarity... 
um, becomes a primary value for Camus, who was a, a democratic socialist, I think you would say. Um, but his criticism of Sartre, um, carried out at various points, is that if we're just free, we're free to do anything. So what obligations do we have to others? Existentialism in Sartre's form gives you obligations to yourself. Be honest with yourself. Don't make excuses. You're the person who's responsible for your own life. But does it give you any compelling obligations to other people? Now, this is probably going to lead into where I'm going tonight because the other famous existentialist and the father of existentialism was Martin Heidegger. Mm. Um, And... One of the motivations of my talk tonight is the revelation since really the 80s but with growing momentum and seriousness since the late 90s about the extent of Heidegger's uh, engagement with, enthusiasm for and uh, entanglement with uh, German National Socialism, known to the rest of the world yep. as Nazism. Yeah, And that's with the uh, release of the Black Notebooks, which are a really important text now for a number of philosophers, but also, from my perspective, as historians, because... Um, Funnily enough, I one of my research areas is the Folk and Volksgemeinschaft, and this particular text from Heidegger uh, is so invaluable, really, as in terms of his usage of certain languages in the 30s that kind of um, encapsulates and perpetuates this idea of um, a national community and a, a vital body that is the German people that was so scarily, uh, I guess, racist. How, you know, what are the kind of things that Heidegger did put into his black notebooks that people have found so controversial and fascinating? Look, this is difficult material to talk about um, because some of the material is, is frankly, very, very, very dark. Mm. Um, Amy's just really introduced very well. I guess if you like the kind of the positive side to Heidegger's um, national socialism, if you can use that term, in the sense that there's a sense of um, the need to identify with a community. Mm. And I think we can all identify with that. It, however, turns out that Heidegger loads up that community with with quite a lot of historical material which comes from his own time now we have this idea that philosophers should call into question all of the conventions and values of their own time but philosophers are human beings and we don't always do that heidegger doesn't call into question the idea that germany has a particular destiny as the country of great poets and great philosophers and also in his imagination a country which has what he thinks is a linguistic and spiritual connection with ancient Greece. And Heidegger has a big story to tell about Western history which says that since the ancient Greeks, things haven't been going terribly well. So who do you look to to overturn the problems with what he conceives to be sort of modern nihilism? This is the term that he uses. He's talking about the growth of technology, the loss of a sort of sense of meaning, the the failure of revealed religions to any longer unite people. He has those very conservative anxieties. Where he moves in a kind of Nazi direction, frankly, is he starts thinking, well, who's going to get us out of this mess as he perceives it? Mm. And his answer is, well, it's going to be, it has to be the Germans because they have a connection with the first beginning of Western history where it went wrong. We've got to go back to the start and we've got to redo it. 
And so when about 1930 he, he, he re- begins to embrace Nazism, he has some pretty high expectations. He thinks that Nazism is going to enable the German folk to break out of the modern world. Um, unfortunately, um, the dark side of this is that the folk has external and internal enemies. Mm. And in order for it to fulfil its historical mission, it's going to need to uh, clean up its shop. Um, and here's where the really dark material comes into into focus. And perhaps I'll let Amy prompt me, but readers yeah. can imagine where this might go. Yeah, it's definitely a slippery slope, which he fully follows and does develop. Um, I'm not going to actually read out one of the quotes that I was reading just then because it's pretty horrible um, and I don't think it's probably great for me to say, but I think you should read it because I don't want to censor people, but I also don't want to give it too much air. But it is scary because he does specifically single out uh, the Jewish people and focus on elements like blood, which I know, of course, uh, Adolf Hitler and the Nazis were focused on. And there was huge amounts of um, social Darwinism and eugenics involved in this kind of theory. Uh, But it is interesting from a historian kind of perspective that we have this primary document that is prior to Hitler coming to power, really, or at the time of it all kind of happening, um, because it's just one more source that seeks to explain how a country could get caught up in um, a theory and a worldview that is so deadly and so uh, discriminatory and creating, I guess, an in-group and an out-group. What are your thoughts around how the philosophical community has responded to Heidegger? Because being... um, So Sartre's got being in nothingness and we've also got Heidegger, which is being in time. And he has been a very influential philosopher for a number of time, um, a number of years for that particular text. Look, that's a really difficult question. And again, um, yeah, um, look, I I don't know whether we fully come to terms with it. Um, I want to be careful. I don't want to be ungenerous. Mm. I, Amy's talked a little bit about her background. My, my background was, was philosophy and history, and, and I still work across that, that barrier. And I was morbidly fascinated with the Holocaust, and I did a minor in, in history, including a big focus on that. Mm. Um, so I, I've kind of always... And, and the, other, the other side to the story is I was taught that Heidegger was the greatest philosopher of the 20th century. And uh, this is sort of... I'll put a vintage on myself, early, <laughs> early 90s. Not a lot of this had come out and my teacher, who I, who I loved and still love, sort of said, that's irrelevant, it's not important. But that was mm. before the lectures came out from the 30s, the letters came out from across his life and now these these notebooks. And look, I mean, the way that Heidegger handled the publication of his work is 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 part of the story because he died in 76... Oh, stopped really speaking publicly in 66. The Black Notebooks are staged. They come out in 2014, so that's 48 years. And in the meanwhile, there's been a slow drip feed of 100 volumes of his stuff, and the really controversial stuff has kind of been (laughs) back-loaded, back-ended. And so you do have generations of scholars who were taught one story, including myself, and who... You know, are certainly being challenged by this material to to say, okay, what do we do with this? And this is what I'm talking about tonight. What is the relationship between the search for wisdom and what most of us would think is moral monstrosity? Because there really is some ho- uh, quite horrifying material in 
in the black notebooks and in in the lectures where Heidegger will talk about um, about the need to combat the inner enemy, and he will use the term total extermination in a lecture in 1933, 1944, which is just really chilling, you mm. know. Um, and then there's, you know, further revelations. It gets really quite dark quite quickly about what Heidegger knew about the Shoah and then how he responded to it after the war. And so I, I think we've been given this this challenge. Um, we could be so I can say it's an opportunity. Um, I'm wrestling with it. Uh, I'm wrestling with it tonight in in my paper. Um, my argument is going to be that we should resist the temptation which some have gone down, I, which I, I can see it's there, is to say a philosopher can't say this stuff. And the fact that Heidegger said this must mean that he's not a philosopher. I don't think that's quite right. At least I want to sort of stay in the game a bit longer and work out how a really smart, intelligent person can nevertheless embrace what seems to be high on the list of kind of evil actions. Um, Mm. It's not comfortable. I don't like (laughs) doing it, but I don't feel like... I just I feel something's compelling me to try and have a shot at it again. Mm, mm. Yeah, and I think the whole exercise of philosophy tries to grapple with reason and logic and think things through in a in a rational fashion, whether or not that sometimes is successful or not. But given that that is really an important part of the study of philosophy and argumentation between people, it's kind of a bit, I guess, a bit harder when you think that someone's being quite irrational in their sense of um, having these kind of biases that are so overt and clear throughout their work. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, philosophy is about reasoning and, and you sort of think, I think a lot of us think when we start philosophy, I, by, by doing this, I'm going to become a better person. You know, I'm going, to, I'm going to filter my beliefs. I'm going to learn techniques to monitor my beliefs. I'm going, to, mm. I'm going to stop making stupid statements. I'm going to stop forming ungrounded beliefs. And um, unfortunately, the, the picture might not be that quite, quite that simple. <laughs> I mean, if you have a set of beliefs that are kind of, let's say, heavily biased, discriminatory, you can use reason to draw consequences from those beliefs and that reasoning might be quite sound. It's just that your premises, to use a technical term, mm. are a little bit skew-if. And let's let's say radical discriminatory anti-Semitism for me is high on the lists of things that is, you know, is, is actually irrational. But how you call it irrational and why is worth thinking about because mm. Heidegger didn't think it was irrational. Um, He's got some very, very uh, uh, traditional German Catholic rural kind of beliefs about about the Jews that he's brought up with and he doesn't call into question. And they are essentialist beliefs about a German nation and a Jewish nation. And I think that as a philosopher, you should call into question those kinds of beliefs. Do entire populations have particular character traits. Now, I don't think that if you observe the world, you're going to find good evidence for that. Mm. Um, But Heidegger in the 30s and 40s, he's talking about the German essence being under attack. He's talking about the essentially Jewish, the metaphysical Jewish, all these kinds of notions which I just think a philosopher, as I understand it, should really just go, hang on, what am I saying? Mm. 
Heidegger didn't. Yes. Mm. Yeah. And it certainly is a sign of the times, given that we were um, post-World War One, moving into World War Two, and um, the, I guess, stab in the back kind of myths that were around um, in Germany post-World War One, when people were really um, being quite unfair and wrong in accusing Jews of not pulling their weight in World War One, which is certainly not the case uh, when historians have actually examined the facts. One of, um, just on a lighter note to... <laughs> Lift things Let's a do little bit. Light, okay. Yeah, um, I did. I, I remember a little anecdote. Uh, this is showing how old I am from 2010, and it stuck with me for a while now because um, some a philosopher, just for fun, looked at uh, library books that were in um, philosophical in Britain and American universities, and uh, they actually realised um, they looked at the status of all of these books, and they realised that um, the professors and advanced students that took out um, all the all the books it was an academic collection um, the classical ethics books so the ones pre-1900 were more likely to have been never returned or stolen <laughs> than any of the other philosophical uh, subjects oh gosh there you have it so I just thought that was a little funny <laughs> mini study that was undertaken Probably says nothing, really, but um, I just thought it was a really funny, possibly coincidence. But um, as, yeah, it, as it shows, yeah. philosophers aren't really holier than thou, so you don't need to worry. Uh, we're not looking down on anyone by talking about philosophy. We're all in the in the boat together, as you mentioned with Albert Camus. Yeah, well, I mean, this this idea of um, yeah, one being aware that by becoming a philosopher, you're not kind of ascending into the Empyrean or up to the top of Mount Olympus. It's one of the things I'm going to talk about because I think that that can be, or at least it can intersect with some pretty evil generative beliefs. So, you know, plumbers are really good at being plumbers, but not a lot of plumbers think that they're better than everybody else for being plumbers. Now, I'm not saying that everyone who does philosophy thinks that they're better than others, Mm. um, but philosophy, because it lays claim to to wisdom... um, I call it a vocational hazard in my paper tonight. It's a vocational hazard to go, well, these other people don't think about these deep questions. Mm. I think about these deep questions. I know other people who think about these deep questions. We must be, in some terribly important sense, uh, more important than other people. Now, I I think that's a profoundly problematic belief, and I, I think Amy's anecdote about philosophers who may or may not, and we may even know people who've done this, um, who don't return library books. I may even know somebody uh, quite closely who's done this, um, would suggest that actually getting really smart doesn't necessarily make you universally better in all sorts of ways. Yeah, Yeah, it doesn't build a conscience or create a moral character just by studying theory, does it? It'd be a lot easier if if you could just teach an ethics course and all your students were saints. (laughs) (laughs) That's very funny. Um, I I do subscribe to utilitarianism in a way. I know there are many forms of it, um, but I certainly think it does make a lot of sense. But, yeah, it it can also be controversial. One of the things I want to bring us back to before we also touch on Camus in a bit more detail in terms of existentialism, and we've kind of focused a little bit on the, I guess, um, issues with it in the sense of that moral element and, you know, if we are free to act and we d- and life doesn't have meaning and we're creating meaning, well, you know, 
that means we're in the Wild West. Well, there's another kind of element that I think captured my imagination at the time, and I'm interested in whether this was for you, the same um, thing happened for you. I was interested, and I remember the exact moment when <laughs> Chris Cordner delivered this lecture, and he told me about this anecdote, um, an example where uh, someone acts cowardly and they've done something that they are ashamed of because it was you know, really embarrassing and they acted with cowardice. Um, then some people might label that person a coward and someone might think, well, that's fixed now. You know, that's who I am. I'm a coward. I've done a cowardly act. That's who I am. Um, but the example of existentialism is you have done that once, but that does not make you a coward. You can change your behavior, decide to do anything else and act in another way. And you are you know, it's just an action. It doesn't reflect on your character because there is no fixed essence. It means that you are not kind of bound to a certain way of being. You can liberate yourself, I guess, is what Sartre is saying, and use your free will, but you need to make sure you're always acting in, and he uses these terms, good faith. Did you ever kind of latch onto that? And, you know, maybe you've progressed since and, and kind of, you know, thought it was a little bit silly or, or changed your mind. But initially when I heard that, it just made me think, well, that's kind of true <laughs> to an extent. Because as Sartre says, even if you're imprisoned in a, in a prison cell, you are imprisoned within the cell, but within that cell you actually have free will to do a range of things. I think it's part of the story. I mean... You know, I, there's there's dangers to it. You know, I mean, you mm. can say, "Well, look, I did a cowardly act, and that was yesterday." Um, but you know what? I'm free, and today that doesn't reflect on me at all. And and I think Sartre, in his defence, would say that that's a form of bad faith. You mm, do have to yes. say, "Well, when you look at the evidence, what I did yesterday actually was cowardly." So other people have every right to to say that my action was cowardly. But you do have the ability to, as Sartre would say, transcend what you were um, and make a different choice the next time you're in a situation where maybe you're facing a choice which is, involves fear and, and therefore you know, it involves courage and therefore potential cowardice. You can mm. act differently. Um, I mean, there are problems with the radical freedom idea, which um, um, I'm sure, Amy, you know... You, you, I guess you would have thought through, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. like I, I'm smoking for 40 years, and <laughs> Sartre tells me that I'm free to not smoke. And unfortunately, things aren't quite that simple. My hands are shaking. I'm on edge. Um, I'm treating my family members <laughs> not very well because I'm sort of, you know, wired. Um, there's physiological and other kind of um, mm. constraints. Constraints. Yeah. yeah, they're definitely constraints. And, and you know, the, the, the old classical idea is every time you do a cowardly act, it, it does just leave a little bit of a gro groove on your character machine. Mm. And so the next time you're going to have a little bit more of an inclination to be cowardly next time. So the only way you can kind of overcome that constraint is by starting to do something else. And I think the truth is, is you know, it's got to involve both. Mm. Yeah, you are responsible, you can change, but... Part of that is, yeah, if if you don't act in a certain way, you're going to create bad habits and then it's going to be a heck of a lot harder. Yeah. 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 It's certainly, 
you don't want to make it sound like it's an easy thing to do, which sometimes when people will read that will go, oh, well, you know, I can. And it makes me think of the American dream where it's that idea of, oh, well, you're poor. You can be rich. You just need to work harder and take better actions. That's obviously very false. Um, Herbert Marcuse, a a contemporary of Sartre mm. and obviously a Marxist, he sort of made this comment about Sartre's philosophy. You know, it's good news for the poor that, they're free to be rich. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't change the fact that they're poor. Yes, exactly. Yeah, there's a, an entire system dedicated to keeping them poor. Exactly. And again, let's be fair to Sartre. He did, mm. in his later work, move in a, in a different direction, which yes. acknowledged that. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. And so when we're talking about Sartre, we often hear about Albert Camus because they were associates, they knew each other, they were living and working at various times in the same area. Um, that said, Albert Camus actually did was not born in France. He was born in Algeria. And I think that's a really interesting element to his background and it certainly is reflected through his writing. Um I tried to reacquaint myself with The Plague, which um, is something that you have written about in your books and journal articles and um, focused on the elements where evil is present and this discussion of morals. And um, The Plague, for those who aren't aware, certainly is really important and um, reflected, I guess, an important time in history in about 1947, um, which is just after World War II. And it really is an important kind of... Is it? Would you characterise it as an allegory or something that is um, reflective of the French experience under Nazi occupation? Yeah, I, I think that's that's um, something that Camus is is pretty open about in interviews and and so on. Yeah, so it's basically about a city in Algeria that gets struck by the plague, and then the authorities and this is you know again pretty timely, I guess. Mm. The authorities respond by quarantining the city. And then within the city, various quarantining and other measures um, are undertaken. This thing lasts for the course of a year and those measures progressively become more radical and the parallels with Nazism and the extermination camps become more and more apparent because crematoria are set up to incinerate bodies, Um, people are isolated from their families. And it's a way of Camus addressing... What happens when you're living under a, a totalitarian regime, um, the way that the law begins to operate in a way that isolates people from each other, that um, that uses terror in order to try and um, coerce people to act in very predictable ways, uh, ways that enable social and political control, um, but also have terrible human consequences, isolation, separation from loved ones, the inability to carry out friendships, the inability to carry out love relationships. If your partner gets sick, they get whisked off in the night um, uh, and, and you're not able to see them again perhaps until, well, if ever in, mm. in some cases. So, again, it's, it's a heavy, it's a dark allegory and it's Camus reflecting on... On, on, on the French resistance and the French situation under Nazi rule from, what, 41 to 44, and, and, and trying to let people know that lest we ever think of embracing that kind of government again, which, of course, would never happen, that this is how it works and these are the consequences. In the last lines of the book, the main character's walking through the streets and people are celebrating the plague is gone and the character says, well, yes, but he knew, he couldn't celebrate because he knew that the plague basilis 
would just become dormant. It would hide in bookshelves, in, um, in cupboards, to await another fine day where rats will issue out onto the streets and we'd be facing this possibility again. And I mean, I'm profoundly concerned, like many people around the world, when you look at what's happening in Europe, when you even look mm. at what's happening in the United States, there are tendencies... There are tendencies which I think if Camus was alive, he would be profoundly concerned about. Yeah, yeah, he would. And there are a number of um, societies over in uh, Denmark, for example, that have seen a kind of anti-immigration, a really um, pro-nationalist, um, particularly white element. And that to me is, was shocking when I saw a documentary recently about that because often you will think of those countries in the Nordic region broadly as being quite socially progressive and open-minded and being often seen as an example to the rest of us. Yeah, I just read an article about Bernie Sanders um, talking about, uh, this is in the Washington Post, about the Nordic model. Mm. Evidently, Bernie's not talking about <laughs> that, <model. laughs> about that scenario. He's yes. talking about um, free education, the idea that education's a public good. He's talking about robust welfare systems. He's talking about the aspiration for full employment, mm. um, you know, not loading down your future generations with crippling student debt, trying to make housing affordable. But, you know, this is one of the, the, the things that is true, that even in countries which do have these relatively progressive, um, you know, social policies, these far-right, uh, far-right, far-white um, <laughs> groups are in some cases making significant electoral advances. And they're using that as a way of excluding. They're saying, well, we've got all these good things, so what we need to be really careful about is who we let in. Mm. We don't want the unworthy others coming in and getting access to free education, welfare and so on and so forth. Um, and, I mean, I, I, I didn't read that article, but I understand that's the way that that is playing in those those countries. Yeah, yeah. Um, drawing on an element of uh, Camus that I hadn't really been aware of, um, you wrote a blog post or article around his links with Stoicism, which I think has captured the imagination of a number of people in the general public. Um, obviously, some people may have read Marcus Aurelius, and that's why they have um, been, you know, interested in that uh, movement and philosophy. Um, and I know yourself, you're also quite interested in it uh, personally. What, how do you link Albert Camus and his um, ideas and work with Stoicism? And for those of us who haven't discussed it um, in that much depth or thought about it, what, what does Stoicism mean to you? Okay, so there's a couple of questions there. Um, Camus, in, in, uh, when he was 17, um, he's running around. He's a good-looking sort of young guy. He's playing soccer. Um, he's the first of his family to even make school, um, but he's going really well at school. He's recognised as, as, as a great talent. One day he starts bleeding through the mouth and he's diagnosed with tuberculosis and he's told by his doctor that he might have a, a, a week to live. At this point... On the, on the advice of his his teacher and mentor, he mm. reads a Stoic philosopher by the name of Epictetus. Epictetus was a, a Roman slave. He was a cripple um, who nevertheless became kind of the most celebrated philosopher of his time. Um, 
And, and Epictetus is a Stoic, and and obviously, you know, the the way that Stoicism plays in kind of common language is Stoicism is it's got something to do with dealing with hardship, like mm. for example, being told you're going to die, um, and that's true. Um, Stoicism's a life philosophy. It emerges in kind of later Greek antiquity or medium to late Greek antiquity. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, Really interesting. It's founded by a guy who who it was a trader. He loses all his goods um, in a sea voyage. He comes to Athens and he starts studying philosophy with the cynics. Radi ra. What is it all about? Mm. It's it's about a philosophy that tries to teach you to live in accordance with nature as they conceive it. Great, Matthew. What does that mean? That means that there's a key distinction that you should try to make, and that distinction is is. There are things in your control and there are a heck of a lot of things that aren't in your control. You need to focus on what you can control and you need to learn to accept and let go what you can't control. In between, you've got to learn to try your best to to make you know a good contribution to the world and it's a very social philosophy, but you do have to recognise that other people won't necessarily buy everything you're going to do. Mm. They're not necessarily even going to like you. Um, there's a heck of a lot that's out of your control. I use this, this analogy, which is helpful. Like, so you want to be an archer and you want to go to the Olympics. You spend your life training. You're a gun archer. You're like Robin Hood. And in the decisive moment, the gold medal shot, you hit the perfect shot and the wind blows and your arrow misses. That's life. Mm. Um, and at that point, you've got to accept that you've done everything you can do. Um, and as for the wind blowing, that's they would say Zeus's responsibility. It's not yours. And so the whole thing is built around that kind of structure. And, and they talk about the kind of indifference you have to have to other, other, um, other things. And that sounds really callous and it's not a great translation. It sort of means that things that happen outside in the world that you can't control are neither good nor evil as far as you're concerned. They're in between. Um, they can be good, but it depends what you do with them. You know, mm. having lots of money, like, like most people think that's that's amazing, right? But what happens if you cultivate a, a drug habit? What happens if you move in with people who are only interested in friendship with you because of your money, who try to exploit you? All sorts of bad things can happen, right? Yeah. And the only thing that Stokes say is, is always good is is the ability to kind of live well and live well with others. As I say, it is a social philosophy. You should be concerned about your own kind of well-being and those of you who you love, your friends, your community, and ultimately um, they're a cosmopolitan philosophy. So ultimately everybody, right, every human being participates in the game as far as the Stoics are concerned. And to treat others with contempt, scorn, hatred, dismissal on grounds of what they consider to be utterly contingent skin colour, sexual preference, whatever, from a Stoic perspective as, as I read Stoicism, that's all bogus, right? Um, what matters is a person's character and their capacity to to participate um, in a good life and make choices for themselves. Yeah. The rest is whatever. And mm. that's that's what they mean by indifference, right? It's just like you shouldn't get hung up on that stuff. Exactly, yeah. And um, it certainly does make, I guess, a lot of common sense in the sense that it – why should you focus on things beyond your control? Because it's almost quite fruitless, isn't it? To 
I mean, you will want to. That's often what the instinct is, to kind of grab onto something that you really wanted or desired or, you know, wanted to go right and then it doesn't. And the instinct is to have a reaction to that. Yeah, that's the hard thing. It's easier to talk about stoicism than to, than to be a stoic. And mm. the stoics in their defence say that nobody's kind of ever been perfect. Like, there is no sage, right? Maybe Socrates was a sage, but he's dead. Um, so <laughs> we can't really test, <laughs> test that theory. Um, and only people who like him tend to write about him. Uh, <laughs> but for the rest of us, it's really hard, you know? You want something to happen, and, and disappointment is... Um, is part of part of the game and learning how to deal with it. But the, yeah, the Stoics will kind of give you a bit of a hard lesson. They'll say, "Well, you can worry about it. You can go over it in your head a thousand times, and and that's human. Uh, unfortunately, it's not going to change the situation." I'm trying to teach this to a five year old at the moment, mm. uh, my little boy, um, whose name is Marcus, incidentally. <laughs> and Marcus has a way to go before he becomes Marcus in the yeah. Stoic sense. Exactly. A f- funny anecdote. The first time I told him that there's no use crying over spilt milk, going dad stoic, he, he shouted back at me, yes, there is. Because <laughs> <laughs> it feels better to let out emotion. That's right. And it gets attention from mum and dad. Yep. And there's all sorts of other things. So it's a work in progress. Yeah. Yeah. There are certainly things that people get even as adults from reacting, as you say, getting attention, um, yeah, feeling validated. Yeah, it's a, it's certainly an ongoing process, isn't and it? And just a release of the frustration, that, mm. you know. Like he's, we've seen a lot of tennis racket breaking over the last two and a half weeks, <laughs> uh, for example. Heaps. From a stoic perspective, yeah. that stuff is just kind of pointless, right? Newsflash, your racket is not responsible for you losing the game. You know, that's yeah. what the stoic would say, but... Not easy in the moment, right? Indeed. Well, it was interesting when you were describing a Stoic, I thought of Ash Barty after her loss. Um, she didn't make it into the semi-final, um, sorry, the final, and it was really sad, I guess, for her. And I, she, there was a lot of pressure, um, outside pressure on her, although she would say she wasn't focusing on that. But she certainly was just saying, well, I did my best at the time. I can't do anything about it. That's just tennis. You know, in the scheme of life, it's not a big deal. Sounds pretty stoic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's brilliant. I mean, that's kind of 10 out of 10. I yeah. mean, if that's how she's managed to kind of handle a situation, I suspect she's surrounded by good people and, and, and wise people, uh, even if they don't necessarily call what they're doing stoic. That reaction is kind of – that's like 10 out of 10. Mm. Um, but you do hear this in sports psychology. You do hear a lot of we can only focus on what we're doing and what the other guy does or what the other team does or what the other girl does. That's – up to them that's kind of that's pretty basic that's actually pretty stoic stuff yeah yeah yeah, it is um matthew to close out our discussion um if you were to recommend a text uh one philosophical text and one albert camus text i'm going to separate them out just for our purposes what would you do for those wanting to kind of get interested in in philosophy Gosh, that's really tough. I'll start with the Camus. Um, I mean, everybody loves The Outsider and mm. most, well, a lot of people at school or university have encountered it in one form or another. You, you can do a lot worse than that. It's probably not a book of philosophy. For Camus, his best book of philosophy is The Rebel. It's a little more advanced, um, but that's really his attempt to confront the reality of evil and of genocide. So, again, it's not 
what I call to my students a first date reading, <laughs> um, but uh, it's 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 a very very profound and and um, and important book. Gosh, the, you know, it really depends on where people are coming from in terms of what to to kind of use to to get into to philosophy. You know, some people read Marcus Aurelius, and you know, they pick it up on a self help sh- shelf, and and that's kind of what gets them into it. But mm. you know, I mean, obviously there are, there is lots of different things um, that and kind different of, forms, aren't there? Because there's yeah, aphorisms and essays. That's right. Yeah. People like um, Michel de Montaigne, people yeah. might read because they have short kind of bite size. Look, thank you for mentioning Montaigne. Let's just mm. go with Montaigne. I mean, <laughs> like, I mean, seriously, yeah. like, um, he's just a lovable human being, he is. and um, particularly those early ones. They're short, nice and short. He gets longer as he goes goes on. We all probably do, in terms of we ramble more. But yeah. he's, I, I think you could do a heck of a lot worse than pick up Montaigne's essays or a selection and yeah, and make a friend basically. Which that's kind of how most of us end up feeling about Montaigne. So there's there's heavy duty theoretical stuff, yeah. But there's also stories about his cat. Yeah, it's that kind of book. And he's so really, I guess, interesting in the sense that he. A lot of people kind of mythologise him and talk about how he had this library and, you know, it's like he locked himself away with all these books and then came up with these fantastic essays, which probably, I'm guessing, is a simplistic um, explanation of his life. But he was a very kind of internal person and you do get to access a lot of his internal thinking that often, you know, a philosopher would not share. Yeah, that's... He's the first person. He's like a diarist, like... You really do get to know, like, he's got a gastric complaint. He does ramble on about that a bit towards <laughs> the end there. But, you know, you really, you know, he, his conversations with his servants, um, you get to find out about his, his best friend and his best friend died when he was quite young and yeah. there's a really moving essay about their friendship. He lifts the lid on this idea that we philosophers can't talk about mundane stuff. He's going to take you into his his life, his upbringing, talks a lot about an accident. He had a horse riding accident where he thought he was going to die. He kind of blacked out. And the good news is people that his his near-death experience was extremely pleasant. Mm. So he, he coming back from beyond the grave, he tells us we shouldn't worry about death because it was actually, I mean, I guess he was full of endorphins, but everyone was really worried. He was semi-conscious and he was blissed out. Yeah, um, and that's the kind of anecdote that, that he'll give you. But then he'll reflect on that. Like, say, what does that mean? We worry about death. Maybe we shouldn't. Yeah. Maybe at a certain point, nature takes over and says, "My time now," mm. and you just get to relax. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. He has really interesting perspectives. That's um, if people want to to look him up, it's Michelle, as in M I C H E L de D E Montaigne is M O N T A I G N E. Um, and he's obviously French. Uh, it's very accessible. You can get them from like those, you know, black uh, penguin kind of paperback uh, pieces, the classics, penguin classics, very easily. Um, and I'm sure there are others who've published his work. No doubt you could probably even get the the like out of copyright um, ones from various online sources. Yeah, you can probably get a copy for like six bucks yeah. from Book Depository or something like that. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Or your library. They should have a copy, surely. Or online. Everything's online, online. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Good times. Now, for people <laughs> who want to get into some um, serious reflection when and what we really were discussing at the beginning of this um, 
interview was the discussion about existentialism and evil, which is the and philosophy and evil. Um, They're the kind of subjects you're going to look at, particularly as you've mentioned Martin Heidegger and the Black Notebooks and how we reflect on um, massive kind of events that we would think of as evil like genocide, um, whereas this is kind of seemingly arbitrary death um, that should not occur that is uh, perpetuated by people and and how that happens and why that happens Um, there's so much clearly to think about Um, how do people get along to your talk now Amy I'm going to lean on you here East Melbourne 8 o'clock I couldn't tell you the street address I was going to check my email it's Um, the Unitarian Church Hall 110 Gray Street East Melbourne, and I did check, and apparently um, there's coffee and discussion at seven, and then the lecture starts at eight. Is that right? I think that's the case. There's yep. kind of a bit of a social yeah, thing there first. Is. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's free, and you don't need to book, so even better. Just a gold you can just coin rock donation, up. I think, from memory. Yeah, yeah which would be fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so if you want more details, you can go to existentialistmelbourne.org. Um, to see Matthew's lecture, which is entitled Philosophy and Evil, tonight. It's all going to be happening. Oh, Very it's going excited. to be a lot of fun, I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, honestly, I, 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 working on this is not easy. I mean, no. it feels like you've got a rat dying in your stomach when you read some of this stuff. It's yeah. just awful. But it happens, I, I it's real. Thing. You've got to... Either you turn away, and that's one of the things I can talk about. One yeah. of the things about evil is it likes to hide in the, in the dark. Mm. And so... One of the impulses we have is to turn away. Yeah. And I think we need to be a little careful of that. I think you need to bring it to light if it's not going to happen again. Yeah. I think from like what people who study these things like the Holocaust, it's really hard to sit with primary sources from the Nazi side. And I had to read through SS soldier diaries like for days on end. And I, yeah, at the end of it had this massive cloud over me because it was just so harrowing. It'll damage you at least temporarily, psychologically. And you have to break yourself out of it and just be like, I need to just completely think of something else and, you know, have a, a big mental break but yeah it is something as you say that some people select people need to sit with in order for us as a society to make sure we don't forget and to make sure we learn our lessons and I think that's what a lot of historians at least have been saying recently with uh, Britain leaving the EU and that as well as to not forget why Europe and the union was created in the first place and how that came to be. For all the flaws of the existing yes, model, absolutely, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah just one one yeah. fun philosophy quote from a from Milan Kundera. You know, the the battle against tyranny is the struggle of memory against forgetting. I what mean, a great I, quote! I really like Kundera. I think it's mm. it's one of those ones that's easy to say, but it's actually it stands up when you think about it again and again. I reckon. Yeah, yeah absolutely, Matthew. It's been so fascinating to chat with you, and I really appreciate you taking the time to be so generous and explaining and sharing your passion in philosophy with us. Because um, I think it is important that it's accessible and that people are able to think about it if it's something that they um, are interested about, but maybe daunted by. Because um, I wouldn't be surprised if anyone felt daunted. 
My pleasure. Absolutely. Really appreciate it. I've been speaking with Dr. Matthew Sharp. He's an associate professor in philosophy at Deakin University. So no doubt you could study under Matthew's guidance if you were interested, and maybe you even have um, in the past or at the moment. Uh, It's a really great endeavour if you're interested. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Uh, on this show, Uncommon Sense, uh, we do have a global outlook and perspective and we touch on a number of subjects. And uh, this is a subject that I find particularly fascinating and concerning at the same time. Um, previously, I had the great pleasure of speaking with um, a, a Dr. McCarthy about superbugs and uh, how dangerous some uh, bacteria and viruses are in the sense that we can't uh, combat them anymore. Our drugs may not be um, particularly effective against some. And then we have the situation that we find ourselves in now where we have a, a new virus that has yet has not, has not been previously identified um, one that is a novel, as they say, new uh, coronavirus, and that is a family of viruses. Um, you may have heard of other viruses that are in that family, such as SARS and MERS. And, of course, um, it's pretty much unavoidable to not uh, know what's going on with the coronavirus at the moment. So I'm very excited now to have with me on the show Dr Alexandra Phelan, who is a faculty research instructor at Georgetown University Centre for Global Health Science and Security, which, if you are not aware, is based over in Washington. And uh, Dr Phelan is also an adjunct professor and is a a global health law expert. And so she is often brought in to talk about some of the really important elements um, that are involved legally, socially, scientifically in a major public health issue like an outbreak of a coronavirus such that we find ourselves in now and that originated in Wuhan in Hubei. Um, the the province of Hubei in China. So I really am pleased to welcome Alexandra now. Hi there, Alexandra. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. And thank you for joining us uh, across time zones in America. (laughs) No, no worries. Now, um, it's really fascinating what's happening and also quite worrying. And obviously, a lot of people have been quick to um, make sure we don't panic uh, and get too ahead of ourselves. But there are obviously changing um, stats and changing situations every day with this issue. And you have been in the thick of it for the period um, that it originated. So for those who may not have been across the detail like you, um, how did this novel coronavirus come about? Um, It's the kind of formal or traditional scientific name at the moment is called the 2019 NCOV. And uh, it certainly wasn't something that happened uh, overnight. I think it certainly, as far as I'm aware, originated at the end of 2019? Yeah, so um, what it appears is that the, so in the final days of 2019, um, a cluster of um, pneumonia cases in Wuhan were detected by clinicians. And to get so many clusters, like get so many cases of pneumonia that they couldn't find a single cause from known pathogens, 
um, led uh, scientists in, and, and doctors in China to actually uh, look into whether this was something new. Um, and they notified the WHO uh, of this, this outbreak in, in early January. Um, and pretty quickly, within a week, they had identified and isolated this novel coronavirus uh, as the potential causative agent, the pathogen that was causing this cluster of pneumonia. Um, what we now see looking back at some of more of these data, like foreign contacts and, and people who have been sick, is it likely emerged in sort of mid-December. Um, you know, there's still more research ongoing of when it actually first emerged. Um, and what was first identified was this, uh, this seafood market, Hainan seafood market in Wuhan province, where a number of the people who had this pneumonia were traders in this market. So um, the first I think uh, source of this outbreak that was, um, was hypothesised or thought of is that um, there were you know, animals in the sweat market that would have been maybe being slaughtered or being or, or potentially sold. Um, and the reason why that is is most of these emerging and novel infectious diseases that we see um, come from where animals and humans are interacting, that animal-human interface, and they're called zoonotic diseases. And as we have more people, more um, interactions between animals and humans because of um, urbanisation, because of deforestation, because of climate change, you know, we expect to see more of those zoonotic leaps from animal to human. That being said, there's still a lot of research to be done about where the original source of, of this outbreak came from. You know, it, it probably is going to be, if you go back down the chain, probably bats, because what we know about these novel of, of these coronaviruses like SARS. Um, but there's still a bit more to be investigated as, as whether the actual um, origin of the outbreak was actually before the market, and the market is just the location where the, the spread was occurring. Exactly. And so when we're thinking about uh, a coronavirus, a lot of people have mm. made jokes about the name and how it's related to a beer, but clearly it's not. Um, it's, it's something that is a, a family of viruses. It's a type of virus and there are other viruses that are named and are situated within that family like SARS. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people, depending on the age, may remember when SARS um, was a major event and in China and, of course, did reach Australia and other places in the world. And we've since seen a number of other um, outbreaks like Ebola in Africa and also mm -hmm. the Zika virus in a number of countries. Um, in terms of a, a coronavirus and what makes that particular, what kind of characteristics it has, what would we think about when we're talking about a coronavirus and its features? Yeah, so I mean, at the at the microscopic level, um, the reason they're called coronaviruses is corona being Latin for crown. So you actually see these little crown-like structures on the virus. So that, that's where the name originally originally comes from. And coronaviruses, you know, there are there are many different coronaviruses, and in fact, some forms of just the common cold um, are coronavirus caused. Um, and until you know, until the new millennium. We, we generally had the belief that coronaviruses, well, up until that point, coronaviruses only caused a sort of mild illness, respiratory illness like colds. Um, and SARS was the first time that we saw a coronavirus or we detected a coronavirus that caused a much more severe illness. Um, and so, uh, so when SARS occurred, um, you know, it was a respiratory illness. That means, you know, uh, people had fever. It spread uh, through um, droplets, so airborne droplets. 
So it's, it's not airborne like, say, measles is, which can spread through the air, but it, it, it's through these droplets when people cough and sneeze or they cough and sneeze on the hands and then they touch a door and someone else touches the door. Um, and so uh, what we saw with SARS in particular was healthcare workers being infected uh, disproportionately, and that became quite worrying. Um, because, you know, that's when our infection control should be at its best, right, when people have the right protection and the right masks. Um, a number of years later, about a decade later, we start to see um, the emergence of uh, what became known as Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS, which is also a coronavirus, um, different to SARS, but uh, also causing these uh, this sort of severe respiratory illness um, and, you know, there were outbreaks in the Middle East, um, often associated with people who are having close contact with camels, which is a reservoir for, for the coronavirus, um, for that for MERS. Um, but then there was a large outbreak in South Korea um, uh, that uh, caused a, a number of deaths. Um, this outbreak, this novel coronavirus, when it first emerged and we saw this, this pneumonia, um, people obviously first wanted to see how did it differ to SARS and MERS. And one of the first sort of positive signs was that it was not infecting, it didn't appear to be affecting healthcare workers um, uh, and it appeared to perhaps be less severe um, that people were having milder cases um, and, and less deaths but as the outbreak has progressed we have seen um, events where a number of healthcare workers have been infected and in fact healthcare workers in Wuhan um, who were you know, helping patients have become infected which is obviously very concerning but um, we also are seeing perhaps a, a bit more of a spectrum of disease um, in sort of, you know, it, is, it can be very severe um, in people who are um, in older populations who have potentially comorbidities. So that means like other underlying diseases like um, perhaps um, other, other lung diseases or other, other, sort of, um, other sort of medical problems that can exacerbate the seriousness of the disease. Um, and so what we're, what we're still trying to find out is, um, is that just because, you know, when an outbreak starts, it, you naturally see the more severe cases and detect the more severe cases earlier? Um, it's just sort of the nature of how the outbreak unfolds. Um, or are we starting to find out more about do we have more mild transmission? Um, and that's the sort of data that we're still gathering and still, still get, getting information on. Yes, exactly. And we know that it's certainly given that people can get pneumonia from this um, and it, it is respiratory in nature mm. uh, that of obviously coughing and sneezing and releasing droplets yep. into the air or having them on your hands and touching surfaces, um, putting them in your mouth. There are a whole range of ways yep. that may transmit the virus, although that isn't yet confirmed all the ways that it could be transmitted necessarily. I think it's something people are kind of narrowing down um, and I read recently that they hadn't yet figured out how long it could survive on a surface. Is that correct that, that scientists are still trying to kind of ascertain the exact um, modes of transmission and for how long it might be active? So we're, you know, pretty confident about the sort of main modes of transmission, right? That, that you know, it is that respiratory, that coughing, that sneezing, um, and that's why hand washing um, and um, if you are sick, wearing a mask, but not if you're not sick, mm. uh, like coughing into your, you know, into your elbow rather than into your hands. Um, and yeah, again, that hand washing. So we know that that's you know pretty solid. I think, as you say, there's this, this nuance around the edges with these other ways that it might be transmitted. Um, you know, I think what we know about coronaviruses is because it requires being on a droplet, it normally is a short period of time. 
you know, 24 to 48 hours in a droplet on the surface. Um, you know, we don't expect to see, uh, based on the uh, you know, basic scientific principles and, and biological plausibility, we don't expect to see it, you know, lasting a very long time on surfaces beyond that. Uh, but, of course, that, you know, you want to rule that out. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, with, um, with SARS, we did see gastrointestinal symptoms, such as diarrhoea and potential spread through those pathways. So I think those are the sorts of other um, investigations that are being carried out. You know, I think um, the... The nature of an emerging virus like this is, you know, no evidence of something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Um, and so it's part of that process of going through and 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 uh, cancelling things out as you go. And that that uncertainty can be really tricky to grapple with, particularly for governments in the sort of decisions that they're making about, you know, and public health officials of what to advise people. But when it comes to the main ways this sort of uh, disease, of novel coronavirus, is transmitted. You know, that's where we come back to those real, you know, basic public health principles of, you know, really, you know, behaviour of how people cough and sneeze, of staying home and avoiding mass gatherings if they're, and, and being out in public if they are feeling ill, contacting their doctor if they've got that uh, potential history or exposure, um, and, uh, and making sure that, you know, that hand washing um, behaviour is really important. Exactly. They're really things that we should all be doing, whether we have a coronavirus or just a basic yes. cold uh, or the flu. Exactly. Yeah, I, it reminds me of when a lot of people, um, particularly in Australia, but I'm sure many other places, will just be like, oh, she'll be right. I'll just go to work yeah. and, you know, maybe cough and sneeze a bit. And then your colleagues get the issue because, you know, you were trying to be stoic and hardworking and, yeah. you know, thought you were indispensable to the team. Um, it's yeah, really important, as you say, to make sure you do wash your hands, um, you know, with alcohol. If you don't have hand, uh, you know, water direct, readily available, um, if you've just coughed and don't touch other surfaces that other people are going to touch, like tram poles, etc. Yeah. Um, those yeah. things that can make things worse. Um, so in terms of the symptoms that are mainly um, part of this coronavirus, there are three that are often spoken of, which is a fever, a cough and short of breath, so a kind of sense of breathlessness. Um, are there any others that people would uh, look out for and potentially think about? And and at this stage of the coronavirus and its spread, um, is it still people mainly who have kind of travelled from mainland China um, and have arrived in, in a maybe a different destination if we're talking about overseas countries um, and then they should, you know, be concerned because we obviously don't want every person who has a cold to think they immediately have this particular coronavirus if they don't. Yeah, absolutely. And, and remember, at the moment, this time of year in the Northern Hemisphere, so you know, in China and you know, in other places around the world where people might be travelling, it is also flu season. Um, so, you know, the flu has you know, very similar symptoms. But as you said, the, the fever, the cough and the, the shortness of breath um, really are the sort of the, the main symptoms we're looking out for. But that's, I think, still coupled largely with that travel history. Um, you know, I think things are changing rapidly. We, we originally had advice of um, uh, travel history to, uh, to Wuhan specifically and then to Hubei province and then broader China. You know, and I think from, from really once the outbreak, given the time of year was Lunar New Year in China, I think a travel history to China generally is, um, is something to be, to be aware of. And I think what, I guess, if people are worrying about their own symptoms, um, you know, if they have those symptoms and if they have, uh, within the last 14 days, travelled to China 
or if someone that they're in close, like a family member, um, has travelled to China and they have those symptoms, um, then you know to to call their call their doctor and GPs around Australia have been sort of have been uh, given information about about the process and procedures of of what to do if they have people calling in, and that's the idea that you can get the right the right types of professionals, health professionals, out to you to get you or to to a hospital um, so to to get a test done and see if if you do have the corona do have coronavirus. But as you said, there are many many other causes for. Um, the sorts of respiratory illnesses that are circulating around the world all the all the time, but particularly in the northern hemisphere at the moment. I think that this will advice will probably start to change if we start to see at the moment we all the cases in Australia, as far as I'm aware, as of, of yesterday, are um, still have that travel history, that connection to travel. Um, and apart from some cases in Germany, uh, Japan, and Vietnam, the cases are all connected with travel history. Um, if we do see this start to spread and that we have more um, local transmission, um, then then maybe those definitions will be broadened a bit more. Exactly. And so now, uh, given that the World Health Organisation is a key uh, body playing a role in this and obviously a focus for you professionally as well um, to look at what they've uh, been doing and what they're advising, we've just seen a situation report, the 13th, um, be released. And uh, there is at the moment globally uh, 14,557 confirmed cases. It seems to jump up a lot every day or so there's kind of like an extra thousand or two um, depending on where we're at Uh, most of those are still in China um, and 146 of those are outside of China over 23 countries with one person dying from outside of China 304 deaths officially um, at the moment from China and uh, 2,110 that are deemed critical or in a severe uh, condition. So if we look uh, beyond ourselves for a moment and think about uh, China and the people who are really at the coalface of this, trying to manage something that really does seem um, unprecedented in a sense that uh, it has bypassed SARS, um, and probably for a number of reasons. I guess globalisation has meant that travel within China and and outside of China is, you know, increased. So that might be one other reason why there are uh, more cases and more deaths, um, more cases certainly. And so I'm just wondering, within China, you mentioned there's Lunar New Year. It, it hasn't actually finished yet, of course. Um, that finishes around Saturday. Uh, but it is a really important time for the Chinese and other people in Asia who, and people who have a, a heritage from those countries to be with family. And a lot of people have found themselves uh, being quarantined. And now if you're in Hubei province, they're all kind of self-contained and isolated and being restricted in various ways, I guess. And, you know, right. some provinces have deemed that only one family member can go out and do the shopping. Um, there are kind of a, a various range of rules that have kind of eventuated from this situation. How has the Chinese government been managing things in Hubei um, and particularly, obviously, Wuhan being the centre of this? Uh, we've seen the two hospitals being built um, in that province as well. What, what, do you, what do you take out of China's response um, and how they're currently being able to manage this uh, themselves domestically? Yeah, so the, the WHO Director-General, um, uh, when he declared a public health emergency of international concern the other day, um, was 
um, you know, commended China on its domestic response. Um, and, um, you know, I think uh, I, I personally take a slightly different view. I think that uh, there are, have been some, some exceptional examples of how this outbreak, how China's responded to this outbreak, including scientists who, you know, uh, firstly clinicians who detected the outbreak and then scientists who, you know, shared information and, and viral sequences, you know, incredibly rapidly um, outside of China. I think there's been quite strong commitment from the central government, from President Xi Jinping, um, about promoting information sharing and, and the response itself. But when it comes to, say, the way the officials in Hubei province and in Wuhan have implemented these restrictions, you know, I, I do have some, some concerns that they make people feel uh, that they, they appear to be more... They make them feel that they're effective, when in reality they can actually make the public health response a lot harder and have a lot of costs that are very difficult to quantify, including the human cost. So with this, um, essentially, we call them a cordon sanitaire, essentially a, a rope around an area that no one can come and go rather than just a quarantine because it, it's broader than a quarantine, um, the cordon sanitaire. Um, the real risk is that people um, will, uh, when you have such a heavy-handed authoritarian response, um, people will start to mistrust government and what you want people to be doing in these situations is actually coming forward um, and trusting public health authorities and speaking with public health authorities. Um, and the, such a cordon sanitaire also limits food, um, other logistical supplies, medical supplies. It also limits how people, if people can get to medical centres as well as access to things like diagnostics and screening kits that are so desperately needed. So from a purely public health point of view, these sorts of measures can actually be really, really negative and have a really negative impact. And the reason why they may also not be ineffective, may not be effective, is that people have been travelling for the Lunar New Year for many days before they were imposed, um, and in the, it was imposed two days before the actual Lunar New Year itself. Um, excuse me. Um, and uh, so the, the real challenge is that uh, people had already left, more than 5 million people had already left Wuhan by the time the Cordon Sanitaire was put in place. So really, yep. when you think about the actual effectiveness versus um, the cost, the human cost, um, you know, there's a real question about the legitimacy on many different levels. Exactly. And um, for those who aren't familiar with mainland China, Wuhan is really a central travel hub. Um, it's not only via plane, but certainly by rail. It's a very important uh, part of the network. And obviously, as you said, um, given that Lunar New Year is the, the most busy time for movement across provinces in China, it um, certainly couldn't have come at a worse time uh, to, to for that to occur. There have been anecdotal reports um, and it, certainly it's kind of hard sometimes to verify them given the situation in China um, but there were discussions around the pharmacies in uh, the Hubei province you know having shortages of regular medicines that people need uh, for their own chronic health conditions there's been um, some criticism of the Red Cross and its uh, distribution of um, uh, surgical gowns and and those gowns that are required to um, I guess 
be safe for medical practitioners and also mask shortages. Um, there's so many kind of different elements to this story and also recently um, some discussion around limiting the ability for pe- of people to have funerals for those who have died or to bury them. Um, what is your understanding of some of these uh, situational issues that have arisen because we've seen pretty much daily press conferences from uh, the government that is in charge over in Wuhan um, and they are streamed online on Twitter. So we do have some information that is from the source, but there's also this kind of um, unverified uh, discussions. And I know you also speak Mandarin, so you may have a better insight than myself. Well, the, the, you're quite right in the, the daily the daily press conferences and the information that has been very forthcoming in terms of uh, from the from the Wuhan government, particularly in the in the last week or so. I think the um, the pharmaceutical uh, limits in terms of um, goods of people with other chronic illnesses or other diseases um, that that's not unexpected in a with a response like this. And this is one of the real uh, I guess why I think these sorts of heavy-handed and common-sense responses can be quite damaging because it's not just these primary deaths from the outbreak, but we start to think about the secondary deaths from the outbreak. It's something that we saw during the Ebola outbreak in West Africa is, you know, the number of people that were dying from other diseases that had a significantly high burden in the community or dying from, from childbirth because there was, wasn't... Um, access to healthcare facilities. So this is the, the other angle. It's not just the lack of um, access to pharmaceuticals or um, appropriate personal protective equipment for doctors and healthcare and nurses and other healthcare workers, but um, because of the nature of this respiratory illness and because people are wanting to get tested and they're being told to go get tested, is healthcare facilities are completely inundated um, in Hubo province in particular, um, and you know we can expect that if there are cases around around the world and other countries that a similar thing would would occur, um, and so that's really a matter of government sort of allocating screening locations. So if people need to get tested, you know making sure there's communication about who should be going to get to go to get tested. But really, um, that 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 balance of what the the whole healthcare system. The impact of an outbreak on the whole healthcare system um, can be quite significant. So, thinking about those those secondary casualties of the outbreaks, um, the more nuanced things like the the um, the funerals and the collective funerals. I mean, when we see an outbreak that challenges, um, that, that essentially breaks down the the normal functioning of a society, there's the sort of they're the sorts of uh, secondary impacts we expect to see. Now, whether that's occurring on the ground on the, on the funeral one, for example, I'm, I'm not as familiar with. Um, but, you know, when we do pandemic preparedness, when we are advising governments about the sorts of things they need to be considering, sometimes it can be something that's quite morbid and quite grim questions like, um, you know, uh, what are the facilities available for, the, for, for when people die? Um, how can you actually um, balance, you know, the... the Public health need of of, um, of dealing with the, uh, dealing with these these bodies, but also the important role of of um, ensuring that people can say goodbye and having their own their processes. Again, a similar situation occurred in the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, and there are ways to do that. There are you know particularly engagement with local communities. Um, between public health professionals, um, government and local communities. And the real challenge is, despite having these press conferences, um, the, the getting these particular details and the real human details and experiences is challenging. 
Um, and, you know, I can see that's why people then rely on what goes out on social media. The problem is in a city of 11 million people, it's really hard to know. And 50 million in the province, you know, more broadly, or the cities that are affected in the province more broadly, um, it's really hard to know the veracity um, of the of things that are going out on social media. And that's something that WHO has been quite active with, is that whilst we have this outbreak, we also have this, you know, viral social media pandemic um, spreading misinformation or potential misinformation. You know, even if people have good intent in sharing that information, it may not actually be accurate. So that's one of the real challenges with an outbreak is trying to work out the veracity of information, what's real and what's actually not real. Yes, exactly. And when we're thinking about containment uh, locally, and you've said it's even beyond containment there in mainland China and particularly in Hubei, um, how possible is it um, to to do this in a medium-term situation where the outbreak might continue? Because I think a lot of uh, residents who have posted on things like WeChat, um, they've talked about this being very isolating, very practically difficult if they're not able to work, if they're not able to go out and do the things, excuse me, that they would normally do. Um, I mean, there are many, many practical elements, obviously, to this and economic elements as well. How does China think about those and anticipate anticipate those issues, um, given that at the moment it seems like we haven't reached the peak of this um, virus in the um, the local sense? Yeah, I mean, I think I think they're really critical points, and I, I would say that um, the the frameworks and the processes that have been developed um, for how you implement a quarantine, um, you know, that that try and take into consideration that you know people who are subject to a quarantine uh, should have access to medical care, they should have access to all the essentials, you know, food, water, um, warmth, shelter. They should also, you know, in an in an ethical framework for a quarantine. Um, you know, it should also be the least restrictive measure uh, necessary to achieve a public health outcome. You know, that's kind of the, the main standard that sits there, um, which, you know, tries to take into consideration the fact that, you know, will people lose their job? What happens to family members if they're carers? Um, and, you know, I think my, my biggest concern with this is I don't believe that this is the least restrictive measure to achieve the public health outcome. Um, and part of it is because it doesn't take into consideration these real practical economic and human impacts um, in a way that um, justifies the, any public health benefit. In fact, I would say that many of the many of these social consequences actually have a, a negative public health impact, particularly if they, you know, if they drive people away from accessing services, um, accessing public health services as well as clinical services, um, and make people feel mistrustful of the government because the government hasn't actually engaged in that sort of considered uh, considered process. So, um, you know, unfortunately, I think the measures were imposed. If you know, if they were to have some impact, we'll you know, we will, I'm sure, no doubt, see some um, retrospective analyses of trying to work out if the social distancing that this caused actually delays the outbreak spread. Um, but going forward. Um, you know, the, particularly as we see the outbreak in, in China more broadly and then potentially globally, I think the, the legitimacy and um, the justification for these measures will decrease even more um, over time. Mm. Um, 
just to mention, given that it's only just recently happened and you mentioned their carers, um, it came out that a 17-year-old Chinese boy with cerebral palsy died after his father and sole caretaker was quarantined and uh, two, I think, officials in China lost their jobs over that particular situation. So there are these kind of unintended consequences that people Mm. may not even think of um, that you do need to be aware of when instituting such extreme measures. Um, Looking at that global picture that you mentioned, um, we did see America be one of the early adopters in saying that they are banning travel and making it uh, as such that people from mainland China are not able to visit uh, America at the moment and Australia almost immediately followed suit with their own similar rules around um, non-Australian residents um, you know, entering Australia from mainland China and uh, and the time limit that's involved around that as well. What are your thoughts on these kind of external actors, the countries that are not yet uh, in the throw of in the throes of this issue, having kind of closed their borders to major international travel? And I'm thinking Australia, for example, it being summer here, um, it's a really important destination for Chinese tourists, but also international students who will be starting university uh, in about a month's time? Yeah, so I think um, I'll start with the WHO's recommendations and the Director-General and the Expert Committee that were convened to look at this emergency over the last two weeks. Um, Two days ago made it extremely clear, sorry, not two days ago, last last week made it extremely clear that um, countries are not to impose um, travel bans, um, specifically visa bans or... um, uh, bans on um, individuals uh, travelling and the reason being, and this is well established under um, both sort of the international law that tries to govern this and also public health practice is uh, that travel bans just simply do not work. Um, in this global society it takes more, you know, it takes 36 hours for a person to travel from any place on earth to anywhere else on earth. Um, the the, the so if somebody has, say, dual nationality and it's based on their nationality that they can't access a location, they will use their other passport. If it's based on travel history, that's generally reliant um, on a travel history being consistent with one passport but also with someone um, accurately sharing that information. And something like a travel ban, in fact, is going to make someone less likely to say, well, yes, I have travel history for, you know, in the last 14 days I've been to China because they see an authoritarian response by a government or a government that is not recommended by public health officials or from the WHO and, in fact, is expressly advised against. Um, and so, you know, the, particularly when you then see these quarantines being imposed, um, you know, it, it indicates that it, it means that people are more likely to try and engage in avoidance behaviours. You know, this is something we faced during the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, um, and uh, you know, countries around the world did try to implement um, travel bans based on travel history or based on nationality. Um, and what we know is, is they just simply do not work, and they are um, they impose an in, in, incredibly significant cost on the countries affected or the countries that impose them. Um, and for Australia, you know, economically, that's a big question. So what, what you lose is the opportunity, say someone does arrive, um, you lose the opportunity to, uh, if they arrive and they, they uh, come in through you know, other, other pathways or the other, other mechanisms, um, you know, they, they don't provide a true and accurate travel history, um, you lose the opportunity to provide them with really important public health information. 
And then when someone is in a community and if they are unfortunately ill, um, they're less likely to present to get healthcare services and you're more likely to get an outbreak actually spread in the community. So from the perspective of public health professionals and the WHO, these sorts of measures are actually very counterproductive. They do not work. And even more so, what it means in the long term, other countries around the world, if they have an outbreak, they are less likely to report it if they see that when the WHO makes these recommendations, other countries don't follow them. So the US um, doing this clearly had an impact on Australia. Australia essentially implemented very nearly identical measures, including raising our travel advisories to level four, which is also, in effect, a, a travel ban in, in practice. Um, and so in the longer term, so what, you know, in the next five years, these sorts of reactions actually make the world less safe because it means that you know an outbreak in another country that occurs, that, can, that, uh, that country is less likely to report it um, promptly out of concern of these economic repercussions. And, in fact, all of these international laws that, you know, this declaration was made under and the WHO's recommendations were made under, they actually came out of SARS after SARS occurred and when you know, China hadn't promptly disclosed to the global community this outbreak because of fear of economic repercussions, exactly like what we're seeing now with these travel bans. Um, and so our entire international legal norm system, you know, the international community had come together and built together after that outbreak, um, is currently being eroded by these acts. And the ultimate outcome is not only does it, does it not work now, it makes us less safe now, and it also makes us less safe in the long term. Yes, you make some excellent points there, um, Alexandra, and certainly it does have some really important implications for any future outbreak, as you say. Um, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate you taking the time to explain it all to us so clearly, and I think it's been immensely helpful. So I appreciate your expertise, and I'm glad to hear that you are one of those people um, involved in this issue because uh, we need level heads in these situations. Thank you very much for having me, Amy. It's been a pleasure. I've been speaking with Dr. Alexandra Phelan. She is uh, currently in America and she's based at Georgetown University. Um, particularly, she's a faculty research instructor at their Centre for Global Health Science and Security and is also a global health lawyer. And we've been talking about the coronavirus outbreak in Wuhan, Hubei, in mainland China and also beyond, um, given that it has spread across a number of countries at a lower level. Um, and uh, obviously much more will develop from that. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.